We're going to be looking today at Acts chapter 17. Um, and if you would, please stand uh, as, I, as I read God's word for us. Um, we stand for so many things in society. Um, and I want us to stand, make a practice of standing when we hear God's word. Uh, just to honor the word of the Lord being read. So let's, um, yeah, this is God's word. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For, you, for as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything." And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, this word cuts to the heart. It cuts to the quick. And it reminds us that you are the God who needs nothing. You need nothing, even if every one of us here stopped coming, hearing your word, Lord, you would need nothing. You do not need propped it up. You are the living God. So living God, we ask by your word, through your spirit, speak to us, even this morning. Make known to us the riches of Christ. Please, we ask, we pray. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. This is our last sermon in the series on the incarnation, on the coming of Christ. Uh, And I'm really excited because I get to be back here in the pulpit with you all. Um, I am... I just, I miss being able to preach. I miss being able to be here with one of you, each one of you. Um, but I, I think it's interesting. I, I picked this text because I thought it was just really interesting. You know, we, we celebrate Christmas year in and year out. And you, you know, I mean, I, as I'm about to say what I'm going to say about cultural Christianity, you all are very aware that there is a kind of Christianity that's more social 
than spiritual. You all are very aware there's a kind of Christianity that calls itself Christian, but does not hold to the faith of, in Christ. There's a kind of Christianity that identifies with certain aspects of Christianity, such as the good works of Jesus, but rejects the spiritual aspects required to be biblically defined Christian. There's a kind of Christianity that wants all the goodies, all the meaning, all the purpose, all the virtues of Christianity, and they want to strip it from Christ. I would actually argue, I think this coming generation in the next 50 years, this will be the, the challenge for our church and all churches around, around America, at least. There's a kind of Christianity that wants heaven, but without Christ. There's a kind of Christianity that uses Jesus for our benefits, for his benefits, but does not want Jesus. How do we think about this form of Christianity? What do we do with it? Where do we place it? I would argue, we would place it, I would place it somewhere very close to the Athenians. And that sounds really maybe kind of strange to you because you're like, wait a second, weren't the Athenians, didn't they have like all these gods? The cultural god of cultural Christianity is no different than the Stoics and the Epicureans. It's no different than the Stoics. It's no different than the Epicureans. I actually had multiple quotes to read to you from Stoics, which sounded very much like actually what you hear in most sermons. It's really sad. It actually sounds like a lot of... Pra- You're going to hear very, actually, very many Stoic quotes this, this, tomorrow. Tomorrow you'll hear them. New, new year, new you. You'll hear them. Progress. 2024, that'll be the year of progress in your life. These are Stoic quotes. And if we distill Christianity down to this kind of Christless virtue thing, it's not Christianity. If you're taking notes there, I want you to see this. The self-sufficient, life-sustaining Lord of heaven and earth has not come to be served or assisted, but to be received and enjoyed. This is the greatest message of Christianity. This is the gospel. This is the good news that the self-sufficient, life-sustaining Lord of heaven and earth has not come to be served. He needs nothing from you this morning. He needs nothing from you. He needs absolutely, we need to start telling our children and our neighbors, God doesn't need you. He needs nothing from you. And yet he's given everything for you to be received and enjoyed. So if you're looking there at Acts 17, I want you to jump back to Acts 17. I want you to pay, pay mind. I want you to jump back to verses 16. Now, uh, now, now, just before this, Paul has been chased out of several places. It's typical of Pauline tradition. He gets chased out of towns. He gets chased out of Thessalonica as he stirred up a mob. He preaches in Berea to the Jewish synagogues and received by noble Jews. But then it leads him to Athens. And I think, I want you to just hear verse 16. Because it, it's like he's saying New York City. You could literally replace Athens and be like, and Paul walked it through New York City and was provoked. Listen to what he says. Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked or stirred within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. 
So he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he's preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Oh, brothers and sisters, you walk into a cultural Christianity church and you start talking about Jesus and righteousness and judgment and the resurrection, they will say the same thing to you. Who is this babbler? Who is this babbler? Paul was bothered by the idols he saw in Athens, which led him to a debate. And all we hear is the one side, and I think we hear a partial sermon from Paul. Now, the Epicurean and the Stoic philosophers, they're intrigued by Paul's teaching. We've never heard anything like this. This is new teaching for us, which leads them, jump down to verse 19, and they brought him, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, or Mars Hill, very literally, saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. I would be it, 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 it makes me sad the amount of times I've talked to Christians that I start telling them about Jesus and justification and the resurrection and basic righteousness and judgment, and they say, this is a new teaching. I've never heard anything like this. Pastor, he would talk about me being a good Christian. He would talk about me being, being a little, little faithful Christian growing up, and they would say, but this, this resurrection thing, I've never heard anything about this. I think it's very common what we're talking about today. Now, notice verse 21. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So, we're really no different. We live in a generation that is walking around something new. Something new is actually a very old endeavor. It's not a new endeavor. Now, smartphones and technology has, has amplified it, But something new tickles the ears, and it allows us to be entertained, just like it did them. Now, notice what he says to them. I think this is so striking, what he says to them. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, or in the midst of Mars Hill, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. Now, the KJV, I think, helpfully and yet unhelpfully in some instances, translates that word religious with superstitious. So think about somebody, we we have things in our own culture, we do this. We throw salt over our shoulder. Nobody really knows why we do those things. Or we knock on wood. You remember that? Hopefully this doesn't happen. Knock on wood. Have you ever considered why we do that? It's superstition. It's religion. There's some being... Don't walk in front of black cats. Don't walk under ladders. Don't. It's superstition. It's religion. Now, but Paul's saying this, I think, think very positively. He's commending them and saying, you guys are very religious, and that's good. But, you're very religious, but you don't know the true God. You don't know. The, th- the God, you're throwing salt over your shoulder. You're knocking on wood. You can see them walking in, fr- avoiding black cats, not walking in front of ladders, doing all the weird things we do. Very religious, but you don't know God. Notice what he says then in verse 23. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the inscription, to the unknown God. Now, I want to define worship very generally. That worship 
is defined, generally defined as giving yourself away to another. Okay, so worship is generally defined as giving yourself away to another. Now think about what these Athenians were doing. They were so religious, they were giving themselves to things they didn't even know what they were called. We want to appease the gods so much so that we're going to give ourselves to even things we don't even know. Now, I think helpfully, maybe, maybe helpfully, the Epicureans, I want, I want to define both their, um, before I do that, let me say this. Genuine worship, the true worship of what we're talking about, is giving yourself to the living God in whom and for whom you've been created. And so when we understand that giving ourselves, when we're, give, when we're worshiping, we're giving ourselves away to the triune God. Now, false worship is the exact same, but with a different object. So the Epicureans, they thought that their system of thought looked something like this. So the Epicureans believed, here's man, and we're moving to nothing. After death, there's nothing. We're all heading into nothingness. And the Stoics, I want to give you theirs, they were more what we would call like pantheists, meaning that they thought humanity was going to be absolved into the world or absorbed into the world. The Epicureans believed God was absent. The Stoics believed God was everything. The Epicureans thought they were moving toward ex- extinction. The, the Stoics thought they were being absorbed into the world. And both of them are wrong. And he's saying to both of them, you are incorrect. I thought very helpfully one commentator said, idolatry by contrast to the genuine worship is substituting the true object of worship, God, for an imitation idol and reorienting the relationship from worship to possession. That's, that's the big marker I want you to notice here. And I would argue that's what cultural Christianity and many of the idols of our day does. It turns true worship from the heart into, I'm going to try to possess this thing. We can't possess God. We don't possess the living God. We worship the living God. Now, I'm going to tell a story. I think this story is helpful. Uh, there was a trip my buddy and I took... Um, probably been several years, it's been many years ago, I guess now, but um, we took a trip to Nepal, and my buddy and I were the only, I don't know if you've ever had this experience where the, you're, the only, you're the only person that looks like you and believes like you in the whole town or village, shoot, the whole region. That's where me and my buddy were at. And we were walking into a town, a particular town, and there was a man, a little tiny Nepali man. When I say tiny, all Nepalis are very short. So we all look very, very tall and very different. Uh, so here comes, the white, here comes the white, big, tall, white Americans. They can see us from 100 miles off. And he was, he was coming toward us, and he was going like this. And by the way, the, the phrase nam, namaste, have you ever heard the phrase namaste? Indians will say it a lot. It actually means the God in me greets the God in you. So if you ever actually hear that phrase, he was walking up and he was going like this to us. I was like, whoa, bro, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know, like, but my buddy said he's, he's worshiping us. And I thought, oh, wow, okay, I've never had a situation like this. And he was worshiping us because he thought that there was a God in foreign, foreign people. So he wanted the blessing. He was coming up to us. He was dirt poor. He had nothing. He had nothing. And he was coming up to us, and he was worshiping us, and it was very strange. It was very weird. It was a very weird experience. But I thought to myself, I left there, and I thought to myself, actually, it's really no different than our forms of idolatry. 
It's no different. Different object. He thought he was going to get some blessing from us. But we do the same thing. If I just do the right things, then I'll be blessed. If I just toss enough money in the plate, then I'll be blessed. This This is the God of cultural Christianity. If I just toss enough money in the plate, then I'll be blessed. If I just perform the right kind of worship in the right kind of church, then I'll be blessed. This is the heart of paganism. This is not the heart of Christianity. All right. With all that in mind, I want you to notice what Paul's warning is to them. I want you to see the warning that he gives. The warning is the living God is not. It's not what you think he's like. And it's a warning. The warning is ultimately judgment. So notice what he says. Jump down to verse 23. He says, what therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The first thing he tells them is the living God is not unknown. And that, you're probably like, wow, of course he's not unknown. But that's actually where we get the phrase agnosticism. Unknown, literally, the word therefore unknown is where we get the word for agnosticism. If you don't know what that word means, it means there might be a God. We don't know him. We can't know him, but he might have created everything. This is very common today. We live in a world, it's a very strange world, where agnosticism, you have actually something called Christian agnostics. They like all the goodies of Christianity, but they're not really sure if like, God exists. They like all the virtues of Christianity, but is God really there? The word for unknown is the exact same word we get for agnosticism, and agnosticism is the admission there might be a God, but we can't really know him. So the first rebuke, he tells them, is the living God is not unknown, meaning he is known. The second thing, notice the second thing. He says in verse 24, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The second thing I want us to see is the living God is not living in temples. The living God is not constrained by human hands. He's not bound to a specific location. Every temple has its origin in mankind. Paul's point here is the one true God does not live in the temples that you create. I want you to think about for a second what this would be like. We don't, we, this is kind of removed from us, but I want us to think about it. In countries, they still do this today, in countries where you have temples, you will have people who are dirt poor, who can't even provide for their own family. And that's not on them, it's just they live in poverty. But they'll come and sacrifice food to deities. They'll come and they'll sacrifice their own children at times to deities. False gods always, they are characteristically, they're like vacuums. All they ever do is suck and take and take and take and take and take. But the living God, no, 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 no. He is like the fountainhead of all life, giving forth all things. The God of Scripture is the God who's made everything. Listen to Psalm 50. We just heard it read this morning. Listen to what, how God even reasons with the people. This is David. He says, For every beast of the forest is mine. Now he says of the Lord, The cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. Think about that. This is God saying, All the cattle on all the hills, on all the world, they're mine. You don't have anything. Notice what he goes on to say. If I were hungry, 
I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? No, no. God is not like the deities of the Athenians. And may I argue, he is not like the God of cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity says, come to church, come to church, you keep coming, you do this enough, you keep coming, you be faithful, you be a good little Christian, and one day God will love you. No, 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 no. God has loved us in Christ Jesus. He's given us everything. And then says, come, come and feast, come and eat. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor, notice this, is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So the third thing I want you to see is the living God is not served by human hands. He's not served by human hands. And you're probably thinking, okay, sure, I know that, duh, duh, he's not served by human hands. Why are we even talking about it in this way? Of course I know that God exists. Of course I know that he made everything. But if you listen to cultural Christians, what do they always talk about? Service. They always talk about serving the Lord. We speak of serving him as though he's really needy. We speak of giving to him as though he's poor. God's not poor. He's not needy. We speak of serving him as though he's desperately pining for our attention. I don't know if you've considered this before, but if none of us showed up this morning, God would still be God. And I'll tell you what, you take away the worship of cultural Christianity, that deity just falls over. The view of God is very similar to the Athenians. They believe that God needed their attention. He's desperately pining for their attention. And brothers and sisters, God is not served by human hands. God does not need, have needs from us. God needs no one. Listen to Isaiah. I think this is, this is a rebuke to the people of Israel about their idolatry. And I think it's so cutting. Listen to what he says. Now, this is the way they made idols, but it's the same, it's it's true of idols that we make. The ironsmith takes a cutting tool and works it over the coals. He fashions it with a hammer and works it with a strong arm. He becomes hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. The carpenter stretches a line. He marks it out with a pencil. He shapes it with planes and makes it with a compass. He shapes it into the figure of a man with the beauty of a man to dwell in a house. And he goes on, he's gonna, he, he literally takes, Isaiah 44, takes the whole process of making an idol and the stupidity of making an idol. He says the same man who cuts and carves and feeds this being then wants to be fed by the being. The rest of us, he goes on, he says, he makes into a God his idol and falls down and worship it and he prays and says, deliver me for you are my God. And brothers and sisters, that is no different than any of the gods of our own generation. If worship is generally defined as giving ourselves to another, then may I just say, the, the sex-crazed culture we live in looks really no different than the Athenians. We have people giving themselves away one to another all over the place. And they think, it will deliver me. This will save me. This will make me satisfied. 
You are my God. I don't know if you've ever heard the song. I hope you don't listen to it anymore. But it's, it's, there's actually a song, um, country song, but it's called Holy. And it's actually a song basically about sex. If you ever listen to it. And he takes holy, holy, which is meant to be the attribution of who God is, and he says, high on loving you. Oh, oh Lord, help us. Help us. We live in a generation that is, that is obsessed in this way. And it's deeply idolatrous. He goes, go, go down, jump down to verse 26, though. So he's, he's not unknown. He's, li- he's not living in temples. He's not served by human hands. Notice what he says then too in verse 26. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Fourth, I want you to see that the living God is not sought and found by humanity. Now this one, may I just say, this, this point and this reality that Paul's talking about here absolutely rakes against the coals of cultural Christianity. It, it, it really irks, it, it really bothers every bit of us that's influenced by cultural Christianity. The God, the living God, is not sought and found. I cannot tell you the number of funerals I've went to in this area. You would all agree. I've heard you talk. They go and the message is, seek God. Seek Him. Seek Him. You all need to seek God. And the truth of the gospel is that we don't seek God. God has sought us. We don't seek God. If all we're saying to people is, just seek God. Seek Him. We do not Seek Him. We cannot seek Him. Even the two words, notice, jump down to verse 27. The two words there, that we should seek Him and perhaps feel, those two verbs are actually not even in the, the, we, we hear them and we think, oh, well, we should seek Him. We should feel our way toward Him. That's actually not what he's saying. He's saying it's a possibility, but unlikely. You're not going to do it. Picture with me, if you will, a bunch of people in a dark room, feeling around, groping around in the room. That's the picture Paul's painting here. Without the God who is there, you will feel around, but you cannot find Him. This is so different from many people's understanding, many cultural Christians, which they describe as a blind man. You, you would even hear it. So we do it more than just even in cultural Christianity. We say the same thing. I know you've had conversations with people or you've heard them say that, yeah, you know, God, he's kind of like, um, he's like a big elephant and we all like have different pieces of the elephant. And we, like some of us have the ear of the elephant and some of us have the nose, like the, the, the uh, trunk. Thank you. Man, sometimes my words, they, some, some of us have the trunk, but we all just have a piece of God. And you notice that, that example people always run back to. They're the only ones in the illustration that see the whole picture. And the reality is, is that's not even the picture Paul paints here. He's saying we can't fi- feel our way to him. We can't seek him on our own. But notice what he says in verse 27. He starts to give some hope. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. 
Now, we could spend more time here. We could look at Romans 1 and others. I will save us of that today. Um, But jump down to verse 27, if you will. Yet, he's actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. For we are indeed his offspring. The God of the Bible is not like the God of the Athenians that they worshipped. He is not a God who desires to be served as though he needed anything. Every religion other than Christianity is founded upon a God who needs something from us. But the self-sufficient, life-sustaining Lord of heaven and earth has not come to be served or assisted, but to be enjoyed. Okay, so that's the warning. The warning is you're trying to serve and make your way to God on your own, and it can't happen. Let me give you the hope. We'll spend the rest of our time here. The hope is who the living God actually is. You know, if we just stopped at the warning, there's no good news. If we just stopped at God is this way, he's not living in temples, he's not unknown, he's served by human hands, he's sought and found by humanity, he's not sought and found by humanity, there'd be no good news in this. But there's hope. And the hope is the living God is this way. And I'm going to explain that. Jump down to verse 24 with me. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. The living God is the creator of all things. He's the creator of all things, meaning that he has no origin. We cannot fathom. One of, the, one of the most complicated things, I think, in math is this idea of infinity. If you've ever been a math person, I remember when you start getting into, like, infinite numbers, infinity isn't a number. It it's just goes on forever. That's why it's called infinity. But it has no beginning. It has no end. And yet, we look at that, and our brains, I remember even thinking as an engineer, I don't understand infinity. Our brains, because you know why? Because I'm finite. I'm very small. I had a beginning, and one day I'll have an end. But not God. He has no beginning. He has no end. Everything finds its origin from Him, not the other way around. So that's the first good news. God, the living God, is the creator of all things. The second thing is that the living God is the giver of life and breath. He's the giver of life and breath. Notice what he says in verse 25. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. God's not pining anything from you. You woke up this morning because he's kind. You woke up this morning and were breathing because he cares for you. You woke up today, he didn't come and say, well, Daniel, I need a little bit from you this morning. That's not what he's saying. You woke up and are here this morning because of him. I love what John Piper says here. He says, if you want what Jesus has to give, you can't buy it. You can't trade for it. You can't work for it. He already owns your own money and everything you have. And when you work, it is only because he's given you life and breath and everything. You can't even work for it, because even the, even the strength to work is from him. There's literally nothing you've ever had that's your own. Nothing. 
There's nothing you've ever had that's not been a gift to you. That's why at Christmas we give each other gifts. Because we don't, we are, we're celebrating the one who is the ultimate gift, which is Christ. So he's the giver, the living God is the giver of life and breath. And then finally, he goes on, verse 30, jump down to verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he's fixed a day on which he'll judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed. And of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Thirdly, I want you to see that the living God is your creator and judge. And even the word judge, when we hear it, makes us a little squirmy, doesn't it? He is your creator, and he is your judge. And the reason why we live in a generation that denies the creator God is because the moment you acknowledge a creator, you also have to acknowledge a judge. That if I I didn't make myself, then someone's going to have to judge me based on a standard outside of me. And that's terrifying. He concludes that judgment is coming on all those who are not righteous. Now, we can look at other places in Scripture. Uh, Romans three twenty five says, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He passed over former sins. So the Creator God has passed over former sins but will one day judge them all in Jesus Christ. There's coming a day of reckoning, brothers and sisters. There's coming a day which, when God will judge everything. Because he's fixed a day, verse 31, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Judgment is coming on everyone. Judgment's coming on me and you, brothers and sisters. I think we would actually all be a lot wiser every day if we looked in the mirror and rather than saying, you're smart, you're beautiful, Look in the mirror and say, you're going to be judged someday. And the judgment for the Christian, the hope of the Christian, is that the standard of judgment, which is Jesus Christ, is also the one who will judge us. The judge and the one who calls us innocent is the same person. And it's Jesus. Jesus is both the standard of judgment and the one who will execute his judgment. Paul is not preaching some other gospel here to these Athenians. He's bringing them the cold law and the hot gospel. The problem is for these pagans, they didn't have an agreement on what the law was. So he tells them, this is the law and you're going to be judged. But there's hope. And here's the last piece I want you to see. The living God is seeking you. This is, where, this is where law and gospel come together. This is where good news and bad news come together. The living God is seeking you. We don't come to God because He needs something from us. We come to Him because He's the fountain of life. Rod Mays, I thought, very helpfully says, every other God except the living God is a taker. They consume. But the God of the Bible is a giver. Or Piper, I think, very helpfully again. He says, all we can do is submit to his spectacular offer to be our servant. And this submission is called faith. 
a willingness, willingness to let him be God. Trust him to be the supplier, the strengthener, the counselor, the guide, the savior, and being satisfied with that, with all that God is for us in Jesus. That's what faith is. And having that is what it means to be a Christian. God will one day judge you. And for the Christian, the Christian's hope is that we're made right in Jesus Christ. Our righteousness actually comes outside of us. It comes from another. And that same one who will judge us is the same one who makes us righteous. Praise be to God. So the living God is seeking you. Now here's, here's where it comes to a crossroads. There's three responses, and I think you see them, all, all three of them, even from this passage. And your response matters. Your response matters a lot. So it's responding to the living God. I think this is what actually the gospel looks like typically when it's preached. There are three responses. Here's the first one. The first one is you can mock the truth. And we live in a very, very depraved generation because that's all we see. A generation who mocks the truth. Notice what they do in verse 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And you can just hear the kind of scorn The same kind of scorn that put Jesus on the cross was the same kind of scorn that still existed amongst these Athenians and brothers and sisters still exists today. You can mock the truth. Here's the second option. And I think this is the one that's typically seen in cultural Christianity. It's not the first one. The first one we can all look at and say, "Mm, that one's wrong. We shouldn't mock the truth. Okay. But you can then kindly dismiss the truth. Notice what they say again in verse 32. But others said, we will hear of this again. We'll hear of you again someday. I would argue we live in a generation of people kindly dismissing the truth to your face. Now, behind closed doors, I think they mock the truth. But to your face, they kindly dismiss you. With a smile on their face, they say, no, I'm good. No, thank you. You can do that. Notice, though, the final one. You can receive and enjoy the truth. And those, those are very distinctly tied to one another. It's not just receiving the truth as some stoic that's like, oh, yes, the truth, I, I'm receiving the truth. It's delighting in the truth. The truth that God has come near. Notice what even happens in, in, when he preaches in verse 34. But some men joined him. And believed, and among whom was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. And in that moment, Dionysus, the Areopagite, they only get their names and they're not mentioned anywhere else, and Demarius become two people who stand as those who've left all of the Areopagus. And they come and they receive and enjoy the truth. In that moment for them, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in verse 7. But we have this treasure it's, it's seeing and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the greatest treasure. It's seeing and acknowledging that Jesus Christ is the one who's beloved. 
the self-sufficient, life-sustaining Lord of heaven and earth, has not come to be served and assisted, but to be received and enjoyed, brothers and sisters. And that is our hope here today. Our hope here today isn't even that you'll try hard enough, that you'll, you'll get the right response. Our hope here today is that we're going to receive by faith and enjoy the one who has redeemed us. So we're going to take time and do communion together. I want us to take communion, and I want us to remember and proclaim what we're receiving today. I love communion for this reason. We get to take something, a, a, a tangible sign of our redemption, and, and eat it down together, simultaneously all feeling the bread being ripped apart, simultaneously all drinking down of the, of, of the juice which represents the blood of Christ, proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. I want you to hear the, the warning, though. Notice the warning that he gives, Paul gives, in another place about the Lord's Supper. He says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That, that eating and drinking judgment on himself is, is the person who says, I'm not discerning, am I a Christian? Have you received? Here's the thing you should ask yourself before you eat and drink as it passes. Have I received and enjoyed Christ? Do I receive him even today? I don't care if this is the 10,000th time you've taken communion. Take it, receive by faith, and enjoy the Lord Jesus. But if that is not you today, don't, don't take it. Let it pass by you today. So we're going to take a minute.